Okay, let's talk about Hmong American Idols. Let's talk about Hmong American Idols. We are in our last week, our last week of this series. We spent five weeks, excuse me, six weeks talking about this. And my hope, if, you, if you've been around or if you've caught some of them online, uh, my hope is that during this time you've identified some things in your life or even just one thing in your life that either you put ahead of God or you turn to when you feel like God isn't coming through. Those are two biblical definitions of what an idol is. And we've talked about everything from American individualism to Hmong saving face to the shared Hmong American idols of money, sex, and this week's topic is power. The idol of power. So last week, I told you a little bit about my high school dating days. And this week, I want to talk to you... still about high school, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about my water polo days. Now, here I am as a freshman in all of my dorky glory. Uh, Yeah, I know, exactly. I I don't know how that hairless thing turned into this half ape that I am nowadays, but clearly all the hair just migrated from my head to the rest of my body. But, yep, that is, that is my freshman water polo team, team picture. And see, so on our water polo team, the, yeah, I also have to remember, this was back in the 80s. Okay? There was a lot of hazing. And if you don't know what hazing is, that's basically where the upperclassmen beat the snot out of the freshmen. And that's essentially what hazing is. And, and they come up with all kinds of fancy ways to beat you up, but it's still fundamentally just getting beaten up. And that was a regular part. And even back then, it was sort of seen as, as an important part of high school athletics because it kind of toughened you up. It brought the team together. It's kind of that same boot camp mentality. They sort of beat you up and then to build you back up. So there was a ton of hazing that went on um, during, during my freshman year, actually all four years. And, and so all of us freshmen got it p- pretty bad from the juniors and seniors. Um, but again, you get tough, you, you sort of learn how to survive it. And, um, and, and then, but what's interesting is there was this pattern that I saw over and over again. Okay? We as freshmen would get beaten up on like a daily basis okay, um, by the seniors. And then when the freshmen become seniors, guess what they do? They go beat up the freshmen. And I didn't understand this. This was just, this was confusing to me. And, and I remember one day, like, I went to one of my teammates. I'm like, dude, why are you doing this? You hated this as a freshman. You hated this. And now as a senior, you're doing the same thing you hated. And here, here was his response. He's like, yeah, you know what? Freshman year sucked. But I'm a senior now. Now it's my turn. What kind of logic is that? <laughs> You know, I had a really sucky freshman year, so it makes it better if I give somebody else a sucky freshman year. What? Now, that is some seriously flawed logic, okay? But it's amazing what happens when someone gets power. It's amazing what happens when someone gets power, especially, especially if that person has felt powerless, You give a powerless person power, and that is very dangerous, very dangerous, okay? In fact, Abraham Lincoln once said that nearly all men and women can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man or a woman's character, give him power. 
Now that's a test of a person's character, especially if that person has felt powerless in the past. You really want to test a person's character? Give them power and see what they do. So, so how do you use your power? How do you use your power? Okay. Now, some of you might be thinking, no, no, okay, okay, Pastor Greg, you, you got this wrong, okay? I'm not the one with power in my family. My parents tell me what to do. My older siblings tell me what to do. My spouse tells me what to do. Heck, my kids tell me what to do, okay? You might feel like the, mo- the least powerful person in your whole family. And you might be saying, listen, I have no power. And that's where you're wrong. Because here's the first thing that I, wa- I really want you to understand. Everybody has power over somebody. Everybody has power over somebody. There, there genuinely is no such thing as a completely powerless person. Okay? Everyone has power over someone. So, so I want you to think of a person you have power over. I want you to think of a person. Now, this, this can be maybe, maybe your power is determined by your age or your gender, guys. Everybody in here, every guy in here, you have power over somebody. Especially if you're Hmong, where there's a gender hierarchy built into the culture, you have power over somebody. In fact, you got a power over about 50% of somebody's. Okay? What else? Maybe it might be by your education or your job. Maybe you're the successful one of the family. But since you're attending River Life, this is kind of a church of a whole bunch of not so, <laughs> not the good kids of the families. So if you're ever feeling like you're not the good kid of the family, you're among good company here, okay? But maybe it is by your education. Maybe you graduated and your siblings didn't. That gives you power over them. Do you understand that? Okay? Or maybe it's by your looks. Maybe you're the one that your mom always said was the beautiful one of the family. And the other siblings got compared to you. Or maybe you got power just because you're loud. Maybe you're just louder. And that gives you power. Maybe you have a stronger personality. You're more forceful. And your other siblings are more passive. That gives you power over them. Or maybe, quite simply, your parents just favored you. Your parents just favored you. For whatever reason, that gives you power. Everyone has power over someone. And if you genuinely feel like you're the bottom of the rung, you are the last one down there, and there is nobody else around you, you're not going to have to go far to find somebody. Somebody younger, less successful, less favored, less something and you have power over them. So how do you use your power? It is not a question of whether you have power. It's a question of how do you use your power? And how do you know if you've made an idol out of power? How do you know that? Well, we're we're gonna get, there are a few clues that we're gonna talk about here, but so first, here are just some questions to think about, 
How do you treat your younger siblings? And, and I'm not talking about like, like maybe like your younger, younger nieces and nephews. Everyone loves playing with the, the little kids. No, no. I'm talking about the siblings or the, or the cousins that are maybe just a year or two younger than you. How do you treat them? How do you think about them? Okay. Guys, how do you treat your sisters? Okay. If you have ever sat on the couch watching TV while your sister was in the kitchen... You have power over her. And in that moment, you were abusing that power because you had the privilege to sit and watch TV while your mom or your family or an auntie was pressuring directly or indirectly your sister to cook. Okay? So guys, how do you treat your sisters? Okay. Been around River Life, you know this, especially back in, in February, you know this question. Strong women, how do you treat your passive men? Strong women, how do you treat the passive men in your families? Do you amp up? Do you get louder and more forceful? If you don't know that reference, go to our website. Go to riverlifefedmen.com sermons and look up Strong-Willed Women, Passive Men. It was a series that we did in fe February. Um, one of our most viewed videos out of all of the sermons we've ever done. Okay, so yeah, so go watch those. It's a good one. So... How do you use your power? Now, you know, the Bible has this amazing story of a group of people with power. And they used it. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite stories out of the New Testament because they used it in such a remarkable way. Right? So I, I want to tell you about this story. It's in the book of Acts. And what happened here, I, I need to give you a little bit of background to understand the context here. So this is in the book of Acts. That means it's the early church. It's the very first time the church was ever formed was the book of Acts. Okay? And this is one of the first controversies. One of the first, and one of the first, not the very first, but one of the first, but certainly the biggest controversy that the early church faced. Um, and it involved, this story begins with a couple missionaries. They were kind of the top two missionaries. Well, kind of they were the only missionaries at that time. Uh, it was Paul and his right-hand man, Barnabas. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas, they had just completed their first missionary journey. It was a, a missionary journey where they went through what we would call Turkey. If you can picture Turkey, um, not Thanksgiving Turkey. Now, see, now you all are hungry. Okay, no, no, focus back. Okay, so, so picture Turkey. Um, if you don't know where Turkey is, it, picture maybe France and Spain, the, the Mediterranean. Okay, just go to the corner of Mediterranean, the Mediterranean, and if you end up hitting like the Eastern Bloc countries, you've gone too far. But Turkey is right over there. It's sort of north of Israel and Syria and all of that. So that was, that was Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey. They just went, went on, a, it was about a two and a half year journey, planting churches. Okay? Among the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's really important here. They were planting churches where the, the Jews and the Gentiles were coming to faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay? And and they're kind of brought up a little bit of a controversy over that. And that's where our story picks up. This is Acts 15. Okay, Acts 15. If you like to follow along on your phone or your Bible, it's Acts 15. And it's a long passage, so I kind of I edited a couple parts out just so we're not here all afternoon. Okay, but but I'll fill in the gaps as we go along. 
So again, this is Acts 15. We're going to start at verse 1 and then go from there. So again, Acts 15. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, which is that southern Turkey. It's kind of a southern section of what we would call Turkey. Um, some men from Judea, which was south, that's, that's kind of like the region where Jerusalem was, where you think of Israel, Palestine, all of that, okay? that some, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there's the issue. There's the issue. So some men came, most likely from Jerusalem, saying that you need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses, which is found in the Old Testament, uh, and then you can be saved. Now, to understand this, circumcision in the Old Testament was one of the primary markers of the people belonging to God, the Israelites. God established it. They didn't make it up. God established it. It was a critical, essential marker. And in the Old Testament, you could not be considered part of the community of God, an Israelite. You could not be considered unless you were circumcised. Okay? And in case you don't know what that is, that's snipping off a little bit of the foreskin of the penis. Didn't think you'd hear the word penis in church this morning. There you go. Okay? So, so it's a small operation that, that was done eight days after birth. Okay? It was circumcision. So, so the guy stands up and says that in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised. And also, if you catch in here, this wasn't someone from the church. This was an outsider. This was an outsider who came in. Okay? And essentially what they're saying is Gentiles, and that's a word for non-Jews. Everybody in the world except the Jews are called Gentiles. Okay, so we're Gentiles. I don't, unless you're of J Jewish heritage, then you're of Jewish heritage. But the rest of us are Gentiles. So, so he's saying these Gentiles who are believing in God, you need to get circumcised. And essentially what he's saying is you first need to be, be Jewish. You need to become Jewish. Then you can become Christian. So you can't sort of just jump straight to Christian. You got to be Jewish first, and then you can be Christian. And this, Paul and Barnabas totally disagreed with this. In fact, the, the passage says, the, ne the next verse after this passage, that they, they argued vehemently, which meant they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with these guys, saying, no way. We are saved by Christ alone. We are saved by faith in Christ alone, not circumcision. So Paul and Barnabas, they just, they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with these guys and argued them, okay? And it clearly must not have come to a whole lot of resolution because the church eventually decided, hey, we need some help with this. This is a big deal. We need some help. We're going we're gonna to send some people down to the, the very first church, which was in Jerusalem. That was kind of the mother church. So, and they had, they were kind of the head church because they were the first. And it's in Jerusalem, the head of the church. Peter was down there. Um, James was the pastor of that church at the time. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, so they said, we need some help with this. Let's send some delegates from our church down to Jerusalem. 
Okay? So again, they're up here in Turkey. They're going to go down to Jerusalem. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas and then a couple representatives of the church to ask the Jerusalem church, and particularly there is a group within there, the Council of Elders. And that was called the Jerusalem Council. So they said, let's go ask the council for their advice because this is turning into a big old fight, chairs being thrown, I don't know, but, but it just got bad. Okay? So that's where our story picks up, is Paul, Barnabas, and a couple representatives go on down to Jerusalem. So here we go. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas were welcomed by the whole church. Oh, wonderful. Including the apostles, the, the ones who followed Jesus, okay, and the elders. So everyone loved that they were there. They reported everything God had done through them. Now that is a direct reference to all of the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ throughout his missionary journeys. So they, t they told reports, hey, listen, guys, Gentiles are coming to believe in, in Jesus as Messiah. Okay? Amazing things are happening all throughout Turkey in this mi these missionary journeys that they were on. Okay? So they go down there and tell them, give them kind of an update. And they're praising God because Gentiles were believing in Jesus. Okay? Let's continue. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees the Pharisees were the Jewish leaders of the time. They, they were the top, the top tier leaders in the church. They belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses, the, that refers to the Old Testament, things written down in books like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, the Ten Commandments, those are all part of the law of Moses. In fact, by that time, the Pharisees had developed um, a list of 613 laws that, 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 were, that Jews were required to follow. So that's what they're saying. They need to be circumcised and they need to follow the set of laws that they have interpreted from what we would call our Old Testament. They would call their, their Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Okay? But so, so here, it's the same thing that the guys up in, up in Antioch were saying. Same thing. Okay? And essentially, Christians have to be Jewish first. They got to be circumcised. They got to follow the law. Then they can believe in Jesus Christ. That's fine. We have no problems with that. Okay? But, but this was a problem. This was fundamentally the argument. So they brought it to the council. This is the apostles, the 11 apostles at the time, um, since Judas hanged himself. So it's 11 apostles, elders, um, the Jerusalem council. They brought it to the council. And they had to make a decision. What are we going to do about this group of people within the church? They were called Judaizers because they wanted to make Christianity more Jewish, called Judaizers. What are we going to do with these? Okay, so let's continue. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. So this is the Jerusalem Council. At the meeting, after a long discussion, you thought like, long uh, elder boards and year-end meetings went long. This was a long discussion, okay? Peter, who was, who was kind of the head apostle, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, 
You all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So Peter makes this argument, makes this case to say, listen, the Gentiles are no different than us. God has shown that he has accepted the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. This happened first with Cornelius in Acts 10, if you've heard that story before, and then it continued to happen all throughout Paul's missionary journeys, his first missionary journey. And so so Peter's saying, hey, listen, to God... We are the same as the Gentiles. We are the same as the Gentiles. Incidentally, that's kind of the first thing that we need for any of us who have power over somebody, which is all of us. (laughs) That's the first thing that we need to remember. We are all the same. That in God's eyes, we are all the same. Okay, let's see where, where Peter continues with this. So now, why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. Okay, let's, let's kind of make sense of this a little bit. Okay? He's essentially saying our ancestors, our relatives, couldn't live out the law. It's too much. In fact, that's the whole purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to show our dependence on God. So if, if we couldn't pull it off, and our great-great-grandparents couldn't pull it off, why on earth would we make other people pull it off? This, this is me talking to the senior who got beat up as a freshman and is now beating up people as a senior. I'm like, dude, you hated it as a freshman. Why are you doing it now? That's kind of what Paul is saying. We couldn't live by the law. Why are we going to make other people do it? Okay, and now continue. So Peter continues here. We believe, and this is critical, we believe that we are all saved in the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. We are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of Jesus. And that's the point he was making. We are all saved. We are not saved by the law. We are saved by God's grace. So that's the end of his speech. Now let's see how everybody responds. Everybody listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among Gentiles. When they had finished, James, the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor of the church, so he's kind of one of the head guys there, okay, He stood up and said, okay, now, here, this, I I skipped a little bit because he kind of makes some Old Testament references and talks because I wanted to get to the heart of the issue. This is the single, in my my opinion, the single most important sentence in this entire paragraph, and it is one that sticks with me over and over again when I think about power and how do we act when we have power. So here's what James said. My judgment is, is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God.
It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Incidentally, well, I'll share a little aside, okay, off script here. This was actually one of the formative verses for River Life as well. Because we wanted to not make it difficult for people to come back to God. So you know what? Let's get rid of all the clothing, all the dressing up fancy stuff. Let's get rid of having, making it a really stiff, uncomfortable place. Let's make it fun. Let's make it comfortable. Let's have coffee. Because we want to remove as many obstacles as we can to any of you coming back to God. So this verse was actually formative in why River Life is the way it is. It's even one of the reasons why we meet in a school versus like a church building at 1 p.m. or something like that. Because, you know, I know some of you haven't had great experiences in church buildings. And I, I don't want you to walk into a church and start getting like PTSD stuff from your youth days when everyone was dogging on you for whatever you were doing, okay? No, you know what? Let's come to a school because we want to remove. Why should we make it difficult for people to come back to God? And that's what James is saying. And that is fundamentally the principle. It is the barometer. It is the test of your power. The power you have over somebody. Fundamentally it is. Do your actions make it harder or easier for less powerful people in your life? I think it's a great question to ask. James challenged the church, particularly this group of Judaizers, the Pharisees who were believing Christians. Um, and he said, why do you make it hard? Why do we want to make it harder? And, and it's amazing, like, I, as I watch, as I watch some husbands interact with their wives, some folks interact with their siblings, and, and sometimes I want to kind of quote James. Why do you want to make it harder on your siblings? to do fill in the blank, pick whatever you want. <laughs> Why do you want to make it harder on your spouse, on your wife, or your husband? Why are you making it harder? Life's hard enough. We all know that. Why do we want to make it harder for the people we love? And so this question, that, this statement that James made has stuck in me ever since before River Life even existed. We should not make it harder for the people around us. Right? So it raises a really interesting question. What do you do with your power? What do you do with your power? Do you make life harder for the people around you? Do you make life harder for your parents? Because you know what? You might feel like your parents are, are kind of the bosses of you. They're the ones telling you what to do, but guess what? My guess is you probably have more education than most of your parents. You're probably more stronger in English proficiency. You're more attuned to Western dominant culture. So you may not feel like it, but you do have power over your parents. Particularly how your parents experience life as, as most likely first generation immigrants. Right? So Think about the people around you. Do you make life harder for them or easier? Do you make life harder for them or easier?
So I want to give you six areas. I want to give you six areas where you might have power. And I could guarantee all of you have, have power in at least one of these areas, okay? So I want to get six area, areas up on the screen here for you to take a look at. In yourself, with your siblings, at work, in church, in your marriage, or with your kids. Okay? All of you have power in one of those areas. So I want you to pick an area. I want you to pick an area here. And if you're not sure, then you have power within yourself. <laughs> you have power over yourself. Okay? So all of you got one at least. Okay? Do you have one? One, maybe two? Um, I know for, for some of you working, you're the, you're the, the low man or woman on the totem pole. Okay, I, I understand that. Okay? But maybe there are people who are newer at the job than you or don't do it as well as you, okay? With your siblings, wherever you are on birth order. Chance, siblings, maybe it's also stretch out to your cousins or nieces or nephews, okay? In church, maybe you don't see yourself as a leader in church, but if you've been coming to church for a month or two and someone is here for the first time, guess what? You have power over them. You have power over a person who is the, the first time at River Life. You can affect how they view River Life and how they view God, simply be just because you've been in these seats a few more weeks, okay? So do you have a spot or two? Now, I wanna read you, a, get you a little bit of a visual. I wanna get, I wanna capture, capture, give you a vision of what godly power, power used for God instead of making an idol out of power. I want to give you a vision of what that could look like in each of these six categories. And I, I'm indebted to a certain book by this author named Richard Foster. Um, it's a great book. It's called The Challenge of the Discipled Life. Um, I, I've been reading it as part of this series. It's been one of my go-to books. It's a wonderful book that talks, it, actually, it's the subheading, you can't really see it, but it says Christian Reflections on Money, Sex, and Power. So, I, so I've been reading this one, and, and what I'm about to share is actually right out of this book. So I didn't come up with this. Richard Foster, a guy way smarter and way more spiritually deep than I ever will be, this, this is his. But I thought it was so good, I wanted to share it with you. Okay, so do you have the area? Do you have an area or two in your mind? Here we go. In yourself, power is to be used to promote self-control, not self-indulgence. With your siblings, power is to be used to cultivate maturity, not inferiority. Do your siblings feel less than you? Chances are you're using your power to foster inferiority, not maturity. At work, power is to be used to build competence, not feelings of inadequacy. Do you build confidence in the people around you? Do people feel stronger about themselves and better about themselves after spending time with you? Or do they feel worse about themselves? Do they feel criticized? Do they feel less than? Chances are you've, made, you've turned your power into an idol. At church, power is to be used to inspire faith, not conformity. 
Power is used to inspire faith, not conformity. And my guess is most of you have been in a church before that inspired conformity. You have to look like us. You have to act like us. You have to dress like us instead of building up faith. And that your devotion to God could look a little different than my devotion to God. In your marriage, power is to be used to enhance communication, not isolation. If your spouse ever feels more isolated from you, chances are you're using your power as an idol. You're using it as a force over them. Instantly, this applies to boyfriends and girlfriends as well. And lastly, for those of you with kids, with your kids, power is used to nurture confidence, not subservience. Are your kids growing in their confidence or are they growing in their ability to do what you tell them to do? Because one of them will grow productive followers of God. One of them will just basically produce robots or rebels. (laughs) So what do you do with your kids? How do you approach your kids? Do you build up their confidence? Or is it kind of just about doing what you say? Those Those are the signs. That's what it looks like when power isn't your idol. Instead, power is a tool where you can make other people's lives better. So I leave you with James's statement. Why do we make it harder for other people? Whether it's to come to God or whether it's to grow in their own maturity, be more connected to their family, to succeed in school, to get that job, to communicate better, Why do we make it harder for people? All of you have power over somebody. And let me just, I'm going to read you these words again. Self-control, maturity, confidence, faith, communication, and competence. Those are all great things to foster in somebody else. And we see this picture of the Jerusalem Council. They had the power to change the course of human history with what the Christian life would look like. But they chose to use their power wonderfully. And every one of us in here are a beneficiary of their wise use of power. So I ask you, are the people around you in your life and your family beneficiaries of your wise use of power or are they put under you do you kind of use power to oppress or power to create I pray for a church and I pray for people that use power to create join me in prayer Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not used your power to oppress us.
God, but you have used your power to bring us life. You have used your power to bring life through the river of God to a desert land. You have used your power to bring life to every person here. Let us do the same. God, you have put each one of us in places and positions where we have power. God, let us not turn that power into an idol that we use for our benefit, but instead we use power to make life better for other people, to make life better, to make it easier for people to come to you, easier to be a part of our family, easier to be our brother, our sister, our husband, our wife, easier to be our friend, our coworker, and easier to be a follower of you. So let us use that power well, Lord. Proud of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.